Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast episode of Multi-State Mondays. I am Deanna Hayes, Chair of Ogletree's Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group, and I'm joined today by Susan Gorey as our co-host. She's a member of the Multi-State Practice Group and has co-hosted several of our podcast episodes. And we have a special guest with us today, Trina Ricketts. Trina is co-chair of Ogletree's National Riff Warren Practice Group, and we're very excited to have her on with us today. Hi, Deanna. I'm happy to be here. Hi, Trina. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk about this topic. Well, thank you, Susan. I'm excited as well. So today we'll be discussing best practices for parting ways with employees and all of the multi-state issues that can come into play with parting ways with employees. So some of those things that come to mind immediately are notices that might have to be given, specific release agreement requirements, and many WARN acts to name a few. So Trina, could you start us off with an overview of some of those considerations and maybe what employers might want to first think about when they're considering a reduction in force? Um, Sure, I'd be happy to. So there are some global considerations for starting or planning or analyzing or thinking about when you need to engage in a reduction in force that cross all of the states, right? And so I'd like to talk about about those first. One of the biggest issues or things I see that employers struggle with is making sure that they have a very clear understanding of the business reasons for the reduction in force. So the business reasons are what is going to govern why individuals are selected, why individuals are not selected. Having the HR department or the legal organization understand the business's need is very important. So sometimes that could be, hey, we just need to reduce headcount because we need to reduce salary, we need to reduce our wage spend. Sometimes it could be, hey, the company needs to, um, has lost you know, a, a contract or a certain type of work, they know, then they no longer have a need for that, you know, a production line that's associated with that contract or a certain type of work. Maybe the company is outsourcing an entire group of employees. Maybe they had previously had a call service center that they're now decided to outsource. And so having HR, the HR professionals or the legal group understand those business needs is very important because that is how you help your business folks make sure that who's selected is relevant to those business needs and solving those business needs. So that's a very important overall arching criteria. And then the next thing is to think about is how are we going to select based on meeting those business needs? How are we going to select individual employees for termination based on the business needs? So those are some some overarching things. When you get into the selection criteria, and, and I know that this is sometimes the business folks just want to select who they want to 
to select because they want them to go. But it's really important to have objective as possible, objective selection criteria as to why you're selecting individual employees. As an example, that might be um, length of service, or it might be we're eliminating all of these positions. You can also look at performance and you can do a performance you know, rating for your actual reduction in force and decide who's performing and not performing. If that's the direction that an employer is going, it's important to look at any other like annual performance reviews and make sure that those are, those are not wildly inconsistent because if they are inconsistent, sometimes that can bring a claim of, of discrimination. If all of a sudden the employee is not performing, but you know, the last 10 years they got excellent performance reviews, then that is fodder for a, for a discrimination claim. Those are great action items to consider. And once an employer works through that and has identified the business reasons for the reduction in force and the selection criteria that they're going to use, is that something that should be documented? Absolutely. And you want to, to the extent that you can, protect it under some portions of it under attorney-client privilege, like as you're making those decisions. And then having um, documented non-privileged documents that show why employees were selected is important as well for a variety of reasons. One, people forget. You think you're going to remember this is the mm-hmm. work you've ever had to done and do in your life as an HR professional. You've had to fire hundreds of employees you don't want to, and you think you'll remember why everybody was individually selected, but it's just not the case. And so if there's litigation that will pop up, it can pop up sometimes years later. So having those those documented rationale is important. Absolutely. I know I can't even remember what I ate yesterday, so I can certainly <laughs> that would be easy to forget. Um, and I, in working through some of these issues with clients, I have found that some employers have policies covering reductions in force and some do not. Can you kind of explain how the approach might be different if an employer has a policy? Sure. Happy to. So, and you're exactly right, Deanna, some employers have a very detailed severance pay plan. Um, and often, and sometimes that's even in what they consider in a, a formal ERISA plan. Some have more of a policy or a practice and some have nothing and ask the question, what do you think the you know going rate is for, a, for severance, right? So it's all over the board. If you do have policies or procedures, make sure you follow them. That's another important thing. Pull those out and make sure that as you're looking at whether an employee, for example, is eligible for severance under one of your policies, make sure you understand what those eligibility criteria are. If you don't have a policy and you want to create one, it's that's also very a very reasonable thing to do. And I one of the one things I will say about having a formal ERISA policy or plan or just an actual policy is it actually, I think as in for the HR professionals who are having to administer a reduction in force, I think it makes your job easier. You have something to point to. It's like the constitution, it's the plan, it's, hey, you're eligible or not eligible. And employees are really, they're used to that, right? When maybe their healthcare benefit, health plan, they have to work 32 hours or maybe a week, or maybe they have certain other eligibility. And so that's something that actually can be very useful for your, their, your HR team. Absolutely. And are there any other 
advantages that you can opine on to having an ERISA covered plan? Yes, absolutely. So I am not an ERISA lawyer, but uh, one of them is you can't you have an argument for federal preemption. So there is an argument that you can get into federal court where in most jurisdictions is a more favorable um, place to be. Uh, there are administrative appeal procedures that an employee has to go through before they can even get into federal court that are within the actual plan and the plan administrator if they feel like they're wrongly denied a benefit, et cetera. There also are, there is some argument that you can more easily enforce things like arbitration provisions or restrictive covenants if you can get ERISA to govern. So there are definite benefits. And one of the other things to keep in mind is that even if you just have a, a policy that's written, ERISA may that may be deemed an ERISA plan. And so, and which is not necessarily a bad thing, except for maybe it's not necessarily fully compliant. But I think I love working with ERISA plans because they're detailed. They provide a lot of information. And I think they're helpful to the HR team who is administering a reduction in force. So in addition to that factor, there are obviously the state issues that we have, but as in all multi-state issues, we have the federal issues that are kind of overlaying on top of these um, RIF. What, in addition to the WARN, are there for the federal issues? Sure, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about federal WARN, the Federal WARN Act, and and so generally, anytime you're looking at a, a reduction in force the, and you think you're going to hit some larger numbers, you're going to want to analyze whether you're triggering a federal WARN Act notification requirement. And frankly, WARN is kind of an antiquated statute. It's, you know, was generally set up a long time ago for plant closings and manufacturing closings. But what it requires, if you trigger warn, it requires a 60-day notice that goes to the employee. And it's not just any plain Jane notice that you want to write. It has certain requirements that have to go to the employee or if there's a union to the union representative. And then there are certain notices that have to go to the state dislocated worker unit and then also to the um, chief elected official of where the facility is located which, by the way, I always love trying to find this out. Sometimes it's a county commission. Sometimes it's a mayor. Sometimes it's a Mm. city manager, but maybe they're not elected. So maybe they're, so it's something to kind of, you know, to think about. And and often when we have some vagueness as to who the chief elected official is, we'll send it to multiple persons or or governmental entities. On that point, the notice is a huge amount of work. So there's at least three, maybe more notices that you have to provide. That's right. There's a, and there, they are, there's something that takes some time and effort to put together and have certain requirements in them. They're only triggered under, under certain instances. Okay. And Susan, you want me to talk about, you want me to talk about those instances? Yes, because one of the biggest issues that our multi-state employers have is does warn apply, or in other words, is it triggered if we have remote employees? Yes. 
I deal with that question all the time. So here's the, and it's and it's a tough one, and the law is still continuing to evolve on it. So here is the general triggers under federal warrant. You can have, if you have what's called a mass layoff, uh, which is 50 or more employees and a third of employees at a single site. And remember, it's and a third. You can also have a um, plant closure if that in fact impacts 50 or more employees. Then another thing to remember is you can also have what we colloquially refer to as a mini plant closure, which is if you had like a line that closed or maybe your call service center closed and you had 50 or more employees that could actually, that could actually trigger. So those are the overall triggers that you need to look for. Remote employees is a really tough, and as I said, it's an antiquated law. Yeah. We're seeing it evolve for remote employees. There are some guidelines we can talk about, about how we think about handling or some best practices about how to think about remote employees. Those would be where they report into. So using the example of the call center, and I've seen this with several of our multi-state employers, they have a call center um, in one location in one state, and they have a few others sprinkled throughout the U.S. that are also call center employees. So if we are shutting down the call center, those employees would be considered in the count for warn, correct? So it depends on, so under federal warn, the, it's a single site. So it depends on what is, it's a single site analysis. So it depends on what is their single site. So if you had call center employees that were physically located at a location in, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. I'll use Kansas City, Missouri. Physically located, they went to a brick and mortar building. They hooked up their microphones and worked. Then that would be easy, right? That's easy. That's the, right. That would be their single site. But if you have employees who are working at home, they log into a computer or a system at their home and they serve as a call center employee, then it gets a little bit more difficult. And so what we try to do is we is we try to have is to start thinking about where do they report to? There has to be a physical brick and mortar location that they do report to, to ultimately. And so it's where is their supervisor is maybe maybe their supervisor as at a, a facility in Kansas City, Missouri, and they work in Kansas City, Kansas, which is about a mile from where I'm sitting right now. So maybe though, and if they were had, maybe they were trained in the Kansas City, Missouri facility. Maybe if they have to come into an in-person meeting, then they would come to the Kansas City, Missouri brick and mortar location. So those are things you look at as to where to assign them a single, a single site. But maybe that Kansas City, Kansas employee has never stepped foot, who's working from home in the Missouri facility location and reports to a supervisor who has an office in New York City. And so in that instance, it's very possible that that New York City facility location could be the single site. The thought process is to look at the different options, analyze them, you know, and you can look at worst case scenarios and best case scenarios. And then an employer can make a risk assessment as to whether they think they trigger federal or as we're going to talk about a state mini warn. What about part-time employees? Are they included in an employee count for warn? Great question. So part-time employees as defined under the Warn Act, which is a different definition than everyone else has, 
are not necessarily included in the, like, for example, the 50 and a third calculation. And that is if they've, you know, worked less than there's so very specific. And what I always do is pull the regulations, frankly, guys, and look at those very specific um, definitions because it's a little bit different than, hey, they work less than 40 hours. Okay. So you'll want to have to do a specific calculation for those part-time employees. If they've, you know, worked less than six of the last 12 months, then they're not included in those counts. But one of the critical issues is, is that if you do have, if you trigger warn without, you know, counting them, then in your facility, they still get notice, <laughs> which I, you got to love that, right? They're not, right. they're not going to the count. They're still required to provide them notice. Okay. So with regard to specific requirements in a RIF, one of the other issues is the federal ADEA, the Age Discrimination Employment Act, in a large group termination. Obviously, there are some specifics that we need to discuss because they're different from an individual separation for someone who is over the age of 40. Can you explain those a little? Sure, absolutely. Under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the ADEA, if you are asking someone who is 40 and over to sign a separation agreement, severance agreement, waiving their age claims, then there are certain requirements that have to go into that release. And if it's a group termination program, which we consider two or more, right? Mm -hmm. So it's two or more employees who are, who are being terminated through a group termination program, then those requirements include, you have to provide those employees 45 days to consider the release. They have to have a seven day revocation period and they have to be um, told to uh, advise to consult with an attorney and they have to be specifically, it has to be specifically written that the ADEA is being released and that, and the, that release can only be backwards. It cannot be a prospective release. And that's pretty, you know, we deal with that a lot. HR professionals deal with that a lot in a, in a single termination, right. right? It's just a mm -hmm. that to seven and 21 days, but that's, that's kind of the same. It's the disclosure that is a little bit different for a group termination. And the disclosure is an actual, uh, typically we have it as an attachment to a, to a release and it sets out the decisional unit, which is who was considered for the reduction in force. It sets out the selection criteria, how, how employees were selected to be terminated. It sets out the eligibility timeframes and the eligibility to, for, for receiving a severance. And then it has the titles and ages of every employee in the decisional unit who was selected for termination and those who were not. And this is kind of a, you know, for our, anyone who, you know, operates in the EU, this is kind of a crazy thing because it has <laughs> specific protected information, right? But it is what is required under the ADEA to get that age release. And while we're discussing requirements for release agreements, there are some states that have specific requirements in order for 
a release agreement to be valid and binding. And we could probably spend hours <laughs> going into the details of that. But could you give us an idea of some things to look out for that might be different state by state? Sure, absolutely. Managing the state specific release requirements is a real challenge. It is a real challenge. And we continue to try to figure out how to best help our clients with that very problem. The biggest challenge is, is that the requirements change all the time. I mean, they change all the time. The, I always I always say the minute that we tell a client or an employer, hey, here's what's required in these, you know, 12 states, then, you know, it's as good as that's as accurate as that minute, because the next day could be different. Frankly, the next minute could be different. So it is a very difficult challenge. Some of the things to keep in mind. So I always recommend try to look in advance as to what states you think you will have employees impacted in. There are many states that it's easy. There's not a lot of specific requirements and there's others. It's very difficult, but the differences can range from in some states, you may have to specifically list the statutes being released. In others, you can say release all the claims and you're fine. In some states, there's specific language that needs to be required to have a proper release. Certain states have different time frames for when an employee must consider it and or a revocation period. For example, in Minnesota, there is a 15-day revocation period for any release of any of their um, discrimination claims under their states under their states' laws. So it's really tough to um, get your arms around these. So, so are we able to incorporate any kind of other provisions into the release agreements, even with all these state considerations? It's really tough, but yes, you can. So are the other the other types of things that can come up other than just the release language and the timeframes are whether an arbitration provision is enforceable if we're trying to continue, if we're either having that in our release agreement or if an employee signed an arbitration provision at the beginning of employment, which are typically more easily enforceable. The same with non-solicits of employees, the same with non-solicit of customers, and the same with restrictive, any type of restrictive covenants about, hey, you can't, employee, you can't go work at a competitor. All of those are very state specific. And sometimes you have these, these restrictive covenants that got signed 10 years ago, or maybe they were signed at a different company. And now a, a um, employer has acquired these agreements and they're, are, they're antiquated. They've, the law has evolved and they're not enforceable anymore. So looking at those and thinking about what you want to enforce, maybe narrowly tailoring them, thinking about whether they matter anymore, and looking at the state laws is very, very important. And then also we have the new McLaren NLRB decision. Yes. (laughs) Often when employers are creating separation agreements, let's just say maybe they have one for every state, which is very unwieldy. So we often... Mm -hmm. Think about doing buckets of states, like certain states that can have a general agreement and trying to bucket of states together. But we also have to now think about supervisory employees and non-supervisory employees and, and typically having different agreements for them due to the, the new McLaren NLRB decision. And then also the recent, it was third, the 30th, there was a new general counsel opinion based on non-solicit agreements. It changes every day. (laughs) Well, 
And the other thing that we also have to be aware of, one of the most important things is the many born acts in the states. And some have very low thresholds, such as 25 employees. And even the cities, some of the cities have many born acts too. That's absolutely right. When you're doing a, a reduction in force, thinking about where everybody's located, and then looking at those mini Warnacks is really, really important. They do vary greatly. Um, and in fact, New Jersey just enacted one that has a mandatory severance requirement. They're different. There's different definitions for employers. There's different def- definitions for employee. There's different thresholds. So keeping in mind um, that you need to look at those mini Warnacks is, is extremely important. And then the other last point is last paycheck rules right. and unemployment so the, notices, which are separate than worn notices. Right, 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 right. That's right. So it, there's all these other kind of practical things that to tie up a reduction in force. When do we have to pay last paychecks by? In many states, it might be the day that you terminate them. And a lot of times an employer's HRIS system will help with this, but having thinking about those things in advance is really important. Some states, you might need to be providing a notice to an unemployment agency. In some states, they might just want you to provide a notice to an unemployment agency, and maybe that's good because it's helpful to your employees. So those are all different, like very practical things to um, think about as you, as you kind of finish up a reduction in force. And all different by state. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, Trina, so much for giving us an overview of all of these issues. I think it's immensely helpful just to understand all of the various laws that can come into play when you are considering having a reduction in force. And it sounds like one of the kind of main parting thoughts that I'm hearing from you is plan well in advance so that you can make sure that you have enough time to prepare notices when they're required and to comply with the timing requirements there. Absolutely. And I will tell you, I don't know how many times I'm talking with an employer about planning a reduction in force or a client. And I always say, plan as much as you can before it gets intense, right? Because these aren't fun things to do. They're not. And the more planning that we do um, well in advance is is really, really important. We can get documents ready in advance. We can look at different things. And But always remember, it's going to change. It's very likely that as the, as the RIF goes along, there's a business need that change. People are selected and deselected. So there's some flexibility that needs to be um, in place as well. But plan, plan, plan. It will sneak up on that day that your that employees are being terminated always sneaks up faster than any of us would like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Trina. Thank you, Susan. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We hope you'll join us for the next Multi-State Monday. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.